we're going to start by reviewing a little bit uh, what we were doing yesterday. So I want to look at I want to look at the Holy Spirit, and we were talking about yielding to the Holy Spirit, the yielding of self. And Luke 9:23, as he was saying to them all, "If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me." And so the self that we are rises in us. And so we were talking about yesterday with how to cultivate the mind of Christ, which is a choice thing. We need to make the decision that when we, when we, want, to, we want to live our lives following the will of God, and we want to know God's will for our lives. And so it is our choice to seek the mind of Christ and to invite the Holy Spirit to give us the thinking of Christ when we have decisions to make, when we're facing temptation, when we see ourselves rising, because we can either be full of ourself, which we are all the time, you know, by our human nature, it's, it's just this phenomenon to me that there are almost 8 billion people, 7.5 billion people on the planet, that's growing as we sit here, and every single one of them is born self-centered, selfish, self-absorbed, self-focused. We all are, it is our nature, and that happened to us when Adam and Eve at the tree decided that they knew better than God knew. And so human nature became about self instead of anything else. And so we have this choice to make, that we can have, uh, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is a choice. And we looked at this passage more deeply this week where we're talking about Philippians 2. You know, what is the mind that Paul is saying he wants in us? And he continues that, Jesus, who being God himself, emptied himself of his godness and became a human and took on his, the human liabilities, that Jesus became that. And so when we say, let this mind be in you, that was in Christ Jesus, it's the emptying of self. You know, Jesus emptied his godness in order to be a human, and so he's this mysterious blend we can't understand of being fully human and fully divine. But he gave up his godness. We know he, he was no longer omniscient because he's in a human body now. He can't be everywhere at once. So he limited himself in that way. He, was, he gave up his omnipotence. He said, everything I do, I do through my father. It is God working in him that performed the miracles, that helped him know what people were thinking. He gave up his own power, his own omnipotence, because as humans, we don't have that. And he gave up his om omniscience, all-knowing. You know, so Jesus gave up those qualities, those characteristics, those na that nature of God. He emptied himself of self to take on human nature. So we want to cultivate the mind of Christ. Uh, Ellen White says, oh, no, this is Bill Liversidge, sorry. Uh, it's one of the highest privileges of a human being in sinful flesh to receive the mind of Christ. But... When he comes in, he doesn't do everything for you. He doesn't take every little step that you need to take. What he does do is change the most important part of your being, which up until then has been enslaved by sin. You weren't even capable, really, of doing anything differently because your mind is in control. Do you understand what he's saying? That in our human nature, we are incapable of having the mind of Christ unless we seek that. But now that the mind has renewed thoughts and new feelings when we receive Jesus. Does that make sense to you? The thoughts and feelings of Jesus communicated to us through the Holy Spirit, who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And so when we seek the mind of Christ, we are surrendering ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Uh, we cultivate the mind of Christ through our surrender of self. Liverstitch continues, why do we struggle when we ought to be surrendering? Why don't we simply surrender and invite Christ's mind to come into us? We'd have all his love, his joy, his peace, his forgiveness. All this would be ours. We don't do it for one simple reason, and notice this carefully. We don't do it because we have not established the habit of doing it. Most of us, when we're under pressure, when we're stretched, when we're tempted, when we're facing situations beyond our capacity of our regular human natures, especially if we've moved into the spiritual realm. Most of us don't think of submitting our mind to Christ, to 
be renewed to have his mind. We don't think of coming back to the cross and renewing our belief and confidence in what Jesus has given us through his death. Does that make sense to you? We don't have the mind of Christ because we're not seeking it. You know, we're not surrendering our mind to his and inviting the Holy Spirit to infill us and give us Jesus' viewpoint on whatever we're facing. Uh, the surrender of ourself, our mind to the Holy Spirit. Uh, we talked about um, W. Clarence Schultz and his, his DVD seminar, uh, How to Die Right and Live to tell, tell About It. And he makes this statement. We have two things going in this statement. It is not that we need more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs more of us. Today we have a lot of misinformation about the Holy Spirit, especially in the Pentecostal movement, which is reaching one billion on the planet. It is the fastest growing spiritual organization, is Pentecostalism, which is going into, it's crossing all boundaries. You know, it's in Christianity, both uh, Catholicism, uh, Protestant denominations, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It is in Islam, it is in Hinduism, Buddhism, um, it's in every world religion, and it is unifying uh, people across the world. And it is the idea of, we need more of the Holy Spirit. Am I making sense to you? They go into their meetings to get more of the Spirit. And how do they know if they have more of the Spirit? How do they know? Yes, they speak in tongues. They experience being slain in the Spirit. You know, um, these experiences and uh, supernatural phenomenon are their way of seeking more of the Spirit, which in their thinking validates that they are right with God. You know, they're gods because they're, they are God's people because they have this supernatural manifestation. They have more of the Spirit. In reality, when we're talking about submitting ourselves, surrendering ourselves to God, and surrendering our mind to the mind of Christ. It's not uh, that we need more of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. The Holy Spirit needs more of us. We are not surrendering our day-to-day -day stuff to Jesus. We're not surrendering to him. And so Schilt has given this very powerful. The Holy Spirit needs more of us. The idea of being totally in <laughs> with Christ. Surrender is heart work. Luke says, and he was saying to all of them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Ellen White in Desire of Ages says, all true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he, Christ, will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. This is having the mind of Christ, you know, that he gives us his thinking. Have you ever heard of the concept of reframing something? Have you, have you had a, a picture that you reframed in your house? You know, you put a different frame on the same photograph or the same painting, and it changes the painting. You know, and what we need to do is look at those temptations we have and reframe them with the mind of Christ, with the surrendering to the Holy Spirit, take a different look at what has been so enticing to us. You know, we, we have these temptations and we have these sins that beset us. We have these ways of thinking and we need to put a new frame on those to get a new look at those and that look needs to be through the eyes of Jesus. So the four steps. Now, Schilt makes this really practical for us. He gives practical ways to surrender to the Holy Spirit, surrender to Jesus through his Holy Spirit, which is still omnipresent and can be everywhere present. And all 7.5 billion people on this planet could be surrendering to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is right there with them. Am I making sense? He still has this uh, omnipresence ability. He did not incarnate as Jesus did. And so when, uh, when we want to have the mind of Christ, when we want to experience the fullness that Jesus has for us, and we're serious about doing this. Now, in our world today, especially, I think, in Western countries, 
um, where freedom is like embedded in us. Obedience is not a popular word today. You know, people don't teach it to their kids. You have, you need to obey me. You know, uh, obedience is like no, nobody can tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. You know, we don't want that. But when we capture the cross, when we get the cross, as we talked about on Monday, our hearts are drawn to Jesus, drawn to what he did for us, the extreme, lavish love on us. You know, and, and we respond, and when we say, you know, on our knees, Jesus, I want your will to be done in my life. Jesus said, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. Take this cup from me but not my will, your will. When we say that, when we say, like I did, I shared with you my least attractive alternative yesterday, where I didn't want to be in a classroom again, and I said, I said, Jesus, you know, I, I'm out of work, I've got to have a job, I need your guidance, give me, you know, direction here, and if you want me in a classroom, I surrender to that. You know, when we make the determination that we will live for Christ, we will follow the Jesus whose hands were nailed on the cross for us, then we have this desire to, to be filled with his spirit, to be guided by his spirit. And so the practical steps that Schultz gives us is when we see ourselves rising, you know, Luke tells us to, Jesus said, deny yourself. When we see ourselves rising, then we need to recognize it and acknowledge the ungodly thoughts, the emotions, the desires we have. We need to see it. And that, that takes practice. We don't see ourselves rising in us. And let me give you an example of that. Uh, this morning I was sitting uh, at a table with another presenter and his wife. And we were talking about, you know, sharing what we were doing in our presentations. And then we got off into talking about culture and what's happening in our world culture today, in our American culture today, in our Adventist culture today. And all of a sudden, I had just a whole lot of things I really wanted to share. And I'm, I'm on the point of interrupting uh, and not listening to what uh, the person across the table is saying to me. What's happening to me? Myself is rising. Am I making sense to you? The first thing we need to do is start recognizing it when our self is rising. And I'm sitting there in a state of spiritual arrogance instead of spiritual humility, which Jesus would never have done. And where is all this happening? In my head, in my mind. I have my mind going on right now, not Christ's mind. And so we need to recognize this when our self is rising, and this is a day-to-day -day thing. No matter how many times we come to the cross and we get this, we are living in this selfish creature that we are. And so when I saw that this morning, I mean, this man across from me is talking. He has no idea what's going on in my head, but I'm going to step two, and I'm saying it. I've seen it, I've recognized it, and now I'm saying it. God, forgive me. Jesus, forgive me for being spiritually ignorant right now and thinking I have anything to teach this man and not listening to what he might have to say to me right now. I don't have the mind of Jesus, and I repent. I am sorry. I don't want to be full of myself around this table another minute. So we say it, we confess it, we, we repent. And we, if we need to, we unconditionally forgive anybody who has wronged us. Because when we are sinned against, when we are wronged, what happens inside us? Self rises. When somebody is doing something to me, how do you react when somebody cuts you off in traffic? self rises, you know, and all these little things that are going on in our lives every day, and the big things when people hurt us seriously, you know, self takes over because we are selfish and self rises, so we need to recognize it, and then we need to repent. When I'm driving down the road and somebody cuts me off in traffic, I can't get on my knees before God and repent, literally but I can get on my knees in my spirit and pray and say, forgive me. And so then our third step is to surrender it. Give whatever is going on that is not the mind of Christ, that is not of faith from Christ. Give it to him. Give it up. Surrender. 
yield to the Holy Spirit. Give it over to God. Everything he shows you that is not of faith. And think great controversy stuff here. There is a battle for your mind. And there are more distractions to pull us away from Jesus than there ever have been in the history of the world. And go back to what we talked about under prayer uh, and Bible study. Who are you following? You know, who are you giving your mind to in who you're following? What are you looking at? What are you listening to? What are you reading? And so we see it. We say it. We surrender it. We give it. And Shields adds one more step, and that is we substitute it. As David said, I will hide your words in my heart so that I might not sin against you, O God. You know, so we need to be practicing the Bible study method of memorizing scripture. We need to put scripture into our heads because when the mind of Christ takes over, through the Holy Spirit in us, and we have not our mind, we have his mind. We have not our eyes, we have his vision of what we're looking at. And if we have memorized scripture, we will have scriptures the Holy Spirit will give us to give us strength and support and sustain us through whatever situation we are facing, whether it is any kind of temptation. When we are rising, does this make sense to you? When we see ourselves rising, question. I don't think it matters. Okay, did you hear what she said? That there are situations in, in her experience where uh, she has a hard time surrendering it and that the scripture is helping her do that. So I don't think it matters whether you do three or four first or not, what order you do those in. You know, the point is you're giving it over to God. And if remembering a scripture helps you do that, then that's what you do. You know, but we need to become like Jesus, don't we? And we cannot do that in our fallen selves. We have to be transformed into people who are living daily through communion with the Holy Spirit, who are listening to that voice in our heads. You know, how, how did I discover this morning that I was full of myself all of a sudden? Did I just do that? The Holy Spirit did that to me. And he did that to me because I've been on my knees this morning and invited him to guide my life for this day, committed myself to him again today. Does that make sense? You know, and so the Holy Spirit is doing every step of this process. We can claim no credit for anything that we do that is in God's direction, that is godly. This is Holy Spirit work. And it's heart work. When we see ourselves rising, we get it. And we get to that stage two where I am so sorry. I don't want to be full of myself. I want to be full of you today. You know, that moves on us. And we have to be with that, okay? So this is kind of reviewing what we looked at yesterday, and it's very practical. Um, now we're going to shift gears into today's topic, and that is service. Transformation. How, you know, transformation comes not by accident. Sometimes it does. If you, have, if you have an accident and you are left disabled in some way, that transformation happened. And it wasn't by any design. It was accident. Well, the other guy, the evil, the evil one is designing that maybe. But transformation into the likeness of Christ has to be intentional. It is thoughtful, thought out, and intentional. Commit your time. So we're looking at how to be transformed through service. Commit your time, talents, and treasure to building up the kingdom of God on earth. And I want you to do triads today. And starting with a, a quote from Ellen White in Welfare Ministry, 
We are all woven together in the great web of humanity. I really love the language she uses. You know, when you look at Ellen White's writing, if you see anything that she actually wrote by hand, and there are copies of those things, she only had a third grade education. And as an English teacher, you know, I'm grading kids all the time who can't use grammar, you know, or standard English usage and can't spell. That was Ellen White. You know, her grammar was flawed, her usage was flawed, her spelling was flawed. What was not flawed? Because she only had a third grade education. It's something she grieved over all of her life. You know, the deficit she had in her education. But uh, she was dependent on her editors. You know, they, they cleaned up her spelling, they cleaned up her grammar, they cleaned up her usage. What she didn't need any help with was thoughts and words. You know, she had an incredible vocabulary and she has an eloquence of language that when you start reading big chunks of her, you know, she has this beauty of description. Read the description of Gethsemane in, it, in, in the chapter Gethsemane and Desire of Ages, and she has this beautiful description about a full Passover moon hangs over the city of Jerusalem that is in quietude. You know, she, her language is beautiful. And here's an example of where she uses a really lovely metaphor, and I, I appreciate her as a writer. We are all woven together in the great web of humanity. And whatever we can do to benefit and uplift others will reflect in blessing upon ourselves. And so your triads today, share a time when you were blessed by helping another person. You know what to do? Okay, two or three people. I'm gonna give you about three minutes to do this. So, go. All right, our time is up. I would like to invite two or three of you to share. Is there anybody who would like to share when you, uh, you were blessed by helping someone else, the, what you've told? Anybody want to share with all of us? Ah, so you want them to share, right? Okay. Here's a mic. Years ago, um, before we became Sabbath keepers, uh, we were in a Sunday church and uh, approaching church, we had a, a fairly young gentleman approach us and ask if we could help him with a bus ticket. He said that he had come about 300 miles away from home with friends. The friends had deserted him, and he was left without money or any means to get back home. Well, we questioned in our hearts, of course, whether this story was true or whatever, but um, Bob, uh, my husband, said, I tell you what, if you're willing to come into church with us and uh, stay through church, we'll get lunch afterwards and we'll talk about it. So we did that, and he was willing to come in. And afterwards, we went and had pizza together, and as we talked with him, the Holy Spirit certainly moved our hearts to Bob saying, I tell you what, I'm not going to give you money, but we will go to the bus station together and we will uh, help you get a bus ticket. And so Bob asked the uh, gentleman uh, who sold the tickets to make sure that if he did not get on the bus, of course, not to release that ticket. Uh, so we had prayer with him and wished him well and gave him our contact information, never dreaming we would ever hear at all from him. Um, and months went by to the point that we forgot, literally, about the whole situation and received a call. He was visiting with his father in, I think it was Winston-Salem. And he said, we were sitting here and I shared the story about what you and Bob did for me. And he said, I realized that I had never seen Christianity in action, and I had always wondered about this Christianity thing. And he just spoke in a way that it seemed evident that his heart had been changed, and that was just a piece of the process of what God had used. So we received a much greater blessing. I moved. Are you moved by the story? I'm still moved. Yes, it moves you. Just talking about it moves you again. One other person, anyone else, want to share your blessing story with us? You're hesitating. I see you. 
I'll get to you too. Oh, wait, wait, Ron, you're passing her. Yes, right there. And we'll go back. I work in a neonatal intensive care. And about 20 years ago now, I guess it is, I met a young lady who um, she was working, she had was here from Poland on a uh, student visa working in Cherokee at a campground. She'd had a relationship with a young man and gotten pregnant and had a baby. The baby was born about two months too soon, but the baby ended up with overwhelming sepsis and wasn't going to live. Um, the sad part of this is we were going to have to take the baby off the ventilator, and um, but the, us as the nurses and the doctors, we got together and we flew her brother in from Poland so she wouldn't be alone when the baby died. David and I afterwards took her brother and her and took her to the funeral home and he had never been in the United States and um, we were coming through Hendersonville and there was a car show we took him to that we took him to some different things and I can just well, remember muscle cars <laughs> and there was lots of those days and you know but the thing was is I told Gosha at the time I said this is because I love Jesus and Jesus wants you to know that you're loved well, Gosha has remained my friends for 20 years. That's why I still am a... So is Tomac. And uh, they have um, sent us messages over the time, and they have just blessed us by just that small amount of love we were able to show them. Yeah. Yeah. I moved. My heart is touched. Yes. Yeah, I lived in Chicago for a number of years, and one night coming out of college, I had picked my wife up and we went to a grocery store in the neighborhood to get some food. And it was during around Thanksgiving, and there was a guy standing outside with a grocery cart, and he asked if we could help, and I said, sure, what can I do for you? Well, he says, well, I just got laid off, and I got no money to get food for my family. So we went inside the store, we went and bought, he gave us a list of things that he wanted. We went in there and we went shopping for him and came out and filled his basket up and before and then we went back in the shop for ourselves and when we came back out again after shopping for ourselves many other people had blessed him and gave him a grocery cart full of food and the cart was so full he had to take the cart off the premises and take it on home and push it in the cart thank you for sharing we are blessed when we um why are we blessed when we help others? Think about that. I'm going to ask that as a rhetorical question. All right, let's keep going. Service is the great antidote to selfishness. In our culture today, as you know, we're in the selfie culture, you know, with people taking pictures of themselves everywhere and posting it ad nauseum on their social media sites, and you're laughing. Do you agree, ad nauseum or what? Yeah, it's like uh, we are so focused on ourselves today. Our youth today are so focused on them on themselves, and it's not out of necessarily feelings of pride. I just, you know, I'm so great. I want the world to see me. No, we're caught up in this web, in this net of of putting things up and hoping people like it. And if they don't like it, we don't. If our kids don't get enough likes. You know, in a short amount of time, my college students say within five minutes, if they don't get enough likes on whatever they just posted, they pull it off. And then they spend the next hour agonizing about, why didn't people like that? You know, our kids are in this huge trap of fear of missing out, anxiety about whether or not people are liking what they're doing, and they need help. <laughs> and the great antidote to the self-centeredness that we all have in us as our nature is selfish. And the great antidote for our students today, our children in our homes today, is to get outside ourselves and help somebody who needs help. And service is the great antidote to selfishness. John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have but we'll have, I missed that, the light of life. We'll have life. Sorry for that typo. 
Jesus was the light of the world when he was in the world. After Jesus left the world, what happened to the light? Yes. Jesus was the light of the world while he was in the world. When Jesus left the world, he left what? He left followers who were to be the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light before men, let your light shine before men in such a way, did you get that? In such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So this is doing service to not bring glory to yourself, right? But to bring glory to God. So the people that you were helping clearly, you know, were glorifying God. And the people you were helping got it, got that, that this was for the glory of God, that they were being helped. We are the light of the world. What is pure religion? Christ has told us that pure religion is the exercise of pity, sympathy, and love in the home, in the church, and in the world. I want to stop right there. Sometimes the place where we need to do our greatest service is in our home with our families. Sometimes we get the idea that service is helping somebody out in the world. I have an acquaintance um, who is a Seventh-day Adventist in the greater Chattanooga area who has started a, a ministry to elderly people who are basically dying and too poor to go in anywhere and have no one to take care of them in their agedness as they're dying. So she has started this ministry. It's really grown and become very, very huge. However, her husband has, is left in their home taking care of everything for their family. You know, she's cooking and cleaning and helping the people that she's helping, and she's not at home with her kids who are growing up and her husband who now has to take over everything. When she needs the lawn over there mowed, you know, they have to come, the kids have to come and do work in this place, and yet they have this jealousy because they don't want to help these people because these people are taking their mother away from them. And for years, basically, her children have grown up resentful, you know, because mom isn't with them at all. We cannot fall into that trap. Sometimes the service that we need to unselfishly give you know, the help we need to unselfishly give others in need may be in our home. You know, it may be our spouse, it may be our children, it may be our parents, it may be our siblings, it may be our nieces and nephews. It, sometimes our place of service is in the home. And we need to not be taken away from, and we need to find ways to incorporate our children into the service we're giving. They need to be helping us help other people. And they need to be being blessed by that. If they're not being blessed by that, we need to stop, you know, either taking them with us or find a help project that would be of benefit to them. Does that make sense to you? Sometimes our home is where we need to. And so pure religion is the exercise of pity, sympathy, and love. And sometimes the hardest people for us to have pity, sympathy, and love for are the ones we live with under the same roof. And we've got, to, we've got to get over that. You know, if we can't love the people that we live with, how can we really have the mind of Christ? You know, how can we? Starting again. Pure religion is the exercise of pity, sympathy, and love in the home, in the church, and in the world. Sometimes we're really okay. You know, we send all of our money overseas. We support Adrian, Adventist Frontier Mission, and and what other things are, you know, the 13th Sabbath overflow offering. It's easier for us to give our money than to help somebody in our own church that is struggling. You know, we, we might not even be looking for people in our fellowship who are suffering and need our help. Maybe it's our emotional support they need. Maybe it is our, our spiritual understanding that could help them. You know, whatever it is, we need to be looking. The home, the, I think I said, okay, this is the last time. I am going to get through this quote now. Pure religion is the exercise of pity, sympathy, and love in the home, in the church, and in the world. This is the kind of religion to teach to the children 
and is the genuine article. Teach them that they are not to center their thoughts upon themselves. I'm going to stop here. Do we ever need this today? You know, I had a student that uh, used to enter the room mouth first. You know, we could hear her coming. And she always came in uh, five minutes late when I was in the middle of or just finishing up a worship thought and getting ready for prayer. And she rushes in and takes over. <laughs> you know, she takes over with her prayer request that's going to last 15 minutes because she's got to tell everybody everything that just happened to her and fell apart and went wrong and da-da-da-da-da this morning trying to get her and da-da-da-da. I mean, everything in this girl's atmosphere was about herself. She had no clue how to be quiet and listen to somebody else. You know, when she did listen, we all do this, don't we? How many of us listening to another person are not listening but thinking about what we're going to say as soon as they breathe? And we can jump in. We all do this. You know, and our children especially, who are so subject to the selfie culture, that, that has been created in our culture with the smartphone. You know, they really need to learn this. And who's going to teach them? How are they going to learn it? They're going to learn it through us, through parents, through grandparents, through teachers, through pastors. But before we can tell the kids, get off the phone and come with me, let's go to this family and let's go buy food for them and take it to them. Before we can do that, and tell them they need to be doing that. We've got to be the kind of people that are doing that. Does that make sense? We have to be serving them as well. I want to read that again. Teach them that they are not to center their thoughts upon themselves, but that wherever there is human need and suffering, there is a field for missionary work. Human need and suffering. Matthew 8, Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, now think about what Jesus was like regarding people who were in need, who were suffering. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were helpless, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And, and Ellen White quoting on that, commenting on that, when Christ saw the multitudes that gathered about him, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. When Christ saw the sickness, the sorrow, the want and degradation of the multitudes that thronged his steps, Christ saw that. To him were presented the needs and woes of humanity throughout the world. How did he bear that? To Jesus, who is presenting to Jesus the needs and woes of humanity? His Father. That's why Jesus has come, because of the needs and the woes of humanity. How did Jesus bear that? Don't you wonder sometimes how God bears all the suffering on this planet? 7.5 billion people on this planet. How does God handle all of that suffering? If he even sees a sparrow fall and grieves over that, multiply on this planet. Jesus is touched. God is touched. To him were presented the needs and woes of humanity throughout the world, among the high and the low, the most honored and the most degraded. He beheld souls who were longing for the very blessings he had come to bring. Today, the same needs exist. The world is in need of workers who will labor as Christ did for the suffering and the sinful. There is indeed a multitude to be reached. The world is full of sickness, suffering, distress, and sin. It is full of those who need to be ministered unto, the weak, the helpless, the ignorant, the degraded. And we have the opportunity to be Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet in this world, to be like him. And two, two other uh, scriptures that show Jesus and his nature. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed Jesus. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, 
Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. They got up and followed him. Why did Jesus do that? There's key words here. I hope you're getting the key word that is common to all of these quotations and texts. The last one, and a leper came to Jesus. Now, what's the problem about a leper coming to Jesus? I invite you to look at the rest of this story. I didn't, you know, put it all there. There was a problem in Mark 1, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, if lepers start coming to him to be healed. And if the word gets out that this guy can heal lepers, what's going to happen? All the lepers are going to clean out the colony and come, which means who isn't going to be there? The other people aren't going to be able to come near him and won't come near him. And so Jesus recognized that this was an issue. And in the story, he tells him after he heals him, don't broadcast this forth. Don't tell people. Did he honor that? No, he went out and broadcast it everywhere, and it did hinder Christ's ministry. But here we have. The leper came to Jesus beseeching him and falling on his knees before him saying, if you are willing, you, why did he say if you're willing, you can make me clean? Why did the leper say if you are willing? Yeah. Leprosy is a punishment from God. This man has a double whammy going on. Not only is he suffering from the disease of leprosy with all of the horrors of that, He's suffering from social disconnection. He can't be with his family anymore. He has to leave home. And, and socially, he's disconnected. He's suffering from that. And he's also suffering from the belief that he's a great sinner, that God has rejected him because he, he must have done something horrible in his life. And if he has committed sins, he's suffering under that weight of guilt, feeling responsible for what's happened to him. So, you know, he's, he's asking... He's Jesus, giving Jesus an out here. You know, if Jesus says, no, I'm not willing to help you because you are the lowest of the low. So he says to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. There are two things that are going on in these scriptures that tell us what's a key word with Jesus and what Jesus felt. Compassion. That's a key word, and it's disappearing in our country today. I don't know if it's had any impact on whether or not our offerings have, have gone down in the Adventist church, whether fewer people are giving offerings to places like Adra. You know, because we have an attitude in our country today that is anti-poor people. Have you, have you picked up on that? You know, we have lost sympathy for people who are in poverty. We've lost sympathy for people who are of color. Have you noticed that? You know, and there's less willingness, even among Christians, to be in the world helping people through a spirit of compassion no matter what they look like, you know, no matter what level they're in, we are losing our sympathy and our compassion for people. And Jesus did not lose that. It didn't matter what that person was, where he came from, what his situation was, where she was born, what sins she had done. did not matter. Jesus felt compassion. And there's another thing I want you to notice here. Um, let me see if I can remember it. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched. You notice the one before with the blind man, he touched him. What happened, what was the consequence to Jesus for touching these people? What? Well, Jesus knew he couldn't get leprosy. He trusted God. He had a mission. And he knows that even if he gets leprosy, it's not going to impact his mission. He's not afraid of getting sick. Okay? He's going to be unclean. What did that mean in his culture? He has to go through this whole purification ceremony. He has to take his clothes off, wash himself in a prescribed way. You know, they wash their hands to eat by scoop, scooping up the water and letting it run down to their elbows. That's how they had to wash their hands. I mean, all of this is prescribed, and that takes time. 
And then he has to wash all the clothes he's wearing. He can't, to, to be able to go with. He's unclean until he does the purification or he can't go into the temple. Well, he's like everybody else. If he wants to go to the temple, he has to do that too. And he is not, he's not bound by all of these. He knows he's not unclean by touching somebody, but it's a Jewish culture. And there's some things Jesus didn't take on in the culture. You know, he did take on this. He said, we think, you know, that, that you're polluted or unclean by this, 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 but it's not what's outside you that pollutes you. It's what's inside you that pollutes you. So he did teach to that. But to go into the culture, if he had gone into the temple in an unclean condition and there were spies around watching him, if he touches a leper, isn't there somebody watching him to see what he does before he goes to the temple? You know, so Jesus didn't really try messing with that. So it made him unclean in their sight. It made him unclean. But he wasn't too worried about it. Uh, I love James 2, so I do have to read this last one. If a brother or sister is without clothing, now who's is James talking to? What does he mean, brother or sister? Does he mean relative, literally? It could be a fellow believer. You know, Jesus had said what? And the book of James was written by whom? What? Jesus' brother, James. James, Jesus' disciple, was the first one killed. You know, so he was killed early on. But James's, James, Jesus' brother, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and wrote this book. I think I'm right on that. Somebody Google him. Tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, a brother or sister, Jesus had taught that who is our neighbor? Anybody who needs our help is our neighbor. Yes. And so we have, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. How many times do we do this? We have somebody who is suffering in church, and they have, you know, cancer, they have something going on, and we tell them, and we say, oh, let me pray for you. That's wonderful, we pray for them, but what else should we be doing? Do you need any help? You know, can we get a group, do you need your house cleaned? Do you need your laundry done? Uh, you know, you're suffering with this. I know you must not have time. Can we bring food in? What can we do? We need to not just be saying, oh, I've been praying for you. Well, yay for you. You've been praying for them. We need to be active in our prayer, you know, and help become uh, the solution to some of their, their needs, don't we? And then we have, he was... His was medical missionary work that he asked his people to do today. That's Jesus. Humble, gracious, tender-hearted, pitiful. He went about doing good, feeding the hungry, lifting up the bowed down, comforting the sorrowing. None who came to him for aid went away unrelieved. Not a thread of selfishness was woven into the pattern he has left for his children to follow. He lived the life that he would have all lived who believe on him. It was his meat and drink to do the will of his Father. To all who came to him for help, he brought faith and hope and life. Wherever he went, he carried blessings. And we can do that too. We can be people like that who are blessing the world for being here. Any questions on any of this so far? What are your takeaways in looking at Jesus as our model? Why is service so vitally important in our culture, especially today? Nobody else is doing it, or few. There are other people, and it, it shames me sometimes to know that there are people who have no Christian affiliation or Christian belief at all, who are sometimes the first people to step up and, and bring relief when relief is needed. We're so selfish today, and we're becoming more and more self-centered and self-focused, and we need desperately, Ron, we need desperately 
to, to find the antidote for our self-centeredness, and that's getting out of ourselves to help other people whose needs may be greater than our own. Several weeks back in April, we canceled Sabbath school in our church, all Sabbath school classes, and then we purposely said that we we're going to delay the worship service until 1130. And then we had all of our Sabbath school, most of our Sabbath school leaders and also other ministry leaders that plan different service projects in our community. And we encouraged uh, parents and families to stay together and take their children out. And when they came back, the children uh, elementary school children were excited to be able to go and share their testimonies about what they had done in serving mm -hmm. others. Yeah. That's nice. I have been blessed by people who have helped me in times of my life where I've needed help. When my, my husband died, I continued going to the College View Church because it was a church that had taken such good care of us, of our family going through that his last illness, and um, I had a hard time going to church because Dan was a strong preacher, and there was no pulpit, and that stage area was his space, you know, and he was dynamic and powerful when he was preaching, and I, I sit in the pews, and I've been sitting by, in, you know, by myself forever in the pew, you know, when my kids grew up. And so that wasn't a big thing for me to be by myself. It, the thing was, there's another man up there in Dan's space. And I would just sit there and cry. And I'd try really hard to not get into the sobbing mode. I didn't want people behind me seeing my shoulders going and blubbering all over. So I didn't wipe my tears away. I just let the tears go down my cheeks and fall. And my son James was like, Mom, for pity's sakes, there's another church here in Lincoln. Go there. And I said, I can't do that. You know, these people were so good to me. I can't, not, I can't go to another church. And I know my presence brings Dan along. People are remembering Dan when they see me. And so week after week after week, I just sat there and cried while I had trouble listening to the sermon because it wasn't Dan. Two of the girls that I was teaching, they were sisters. One was a sophomore. One was a senior at, at College View Academy. Um, noticed. And so when I sat down in church, they, wherever they were in the church, they'd get up from their mom and dad and they'd come back and they'd sit one on each side of me and put their arms around my shoulders. You know, it gave me the courage to not cry. You know, it helped me get through that raw grief time and I'll never forget the Nazario daughters and what they did for me. Uh, we had one more. Yes, wait for the mic. Well, we talk about the me-centeredness that is on so many of our kids. And um, like I've said before, I'm a director of an adventurous club. And at Christmas time, the first two years of our club, we would do Operation Christmas Child. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, but you pack a shoebox-sized container full of toys and things for children and then you drop it off at one of their locations with money for the shipping, and they send it around the world to children who would otherwise not have a Christmas gift. And in this, they also, it's with the Samaritan's Purse um, organization. So with this, they also include uh, Bible material. They would give them a storybook, and they set up um, times that the kids can come and hear about Jesus. And so we did that for two years. Well, this third year, I decided to take it a step further and get my kids involved in the community more. So we did our Operation Christmas Child as usual, and I hear my parents telling me, oh, well, we went to the store to buy the baby doll because my daughter's doing one for a girl, or we went and found this paint set, and my son was like, oh, can we buy two, one for me, one for the kid? And so it gave my parents opportunities to say, no, we're only buying one because this is for somebody else. This is for a child who would not get this. And I had the same conversation with my son and with my niece as I was helping them pack their boxes, saying, yes, these doll leaves are really pretty, but we're only buying one for the little girl that you're giving it to. And so we had that conversation to try to get the kids off of the me-centered onto the you-centered of who they were trying to help. But we also did 
bags, and I got brown paper bags, and the kids packed these bags for people that were homeless. Because unfortunately, you see a rising number in those people that you see standing on the corners. And I realize not all of them are truly in need. Um, and that's unfortunate because there are so many of them out there that really are in need. And so my kids' assignment was to each make one of these bags. And while they were driving around, they were to give them a bag. And in there was a glow track. There was uh, necessities they needed, like toiletries and such. Throughout the summer, I had made a bunch of hats. Everybody had a hat and a pair of gloves because it was the winter. And to hear the kids coming back and say, oh, I found somebody here, and I found somebody here, and I gave them my bag. And you had a few. My son was one of them who tried to give a bag, and they said, no, I don't want that. I just want money. And I said, my son was like, well, okay, well, do you want a bottle of water? You know, try it again. And they didn't want anything. But, you know, we found somebody else. And so it made the children be more aware of their surroundings and for them to realize, you know, there's other people out there that need stuff. You know, I have all these toys at home and, you know, I'm never looking for toothpaste because my mom makes sure there's some there every day. But it made them realize that there was more going on in the world that didn't affect them, but that was affecting others. Thank you for sharing that. I do want to point out, and we only have 15 minutes left, I'm moving on. I want to point out that many times our young people are the ones who are suffering. You know, the young people that are self-focused, but that self-focus is eating them alive. You know, they are not, not self-focused with good self-esteem at all. This is a self-focus that is negative and is dragging them down. And many times the young people will be helped themselves. We need to help our young people get out of themselves to help others. I want to give you some resource material. Uh, footprints uh, for kids, we looked at Don MacLafferty's uh, uh, In Discipleship uh, website, and I put the web address for you again. And I want to show you something that Don does. Uh, he has created in his curriculum. And I want to show you um, two things that are powerful in helping you as parents in looking, um, looking at helping our kids become involved in service and this antidote for self-centeredness. And I'm just going to scroll through. You'll notice here that the theme of this lesson is Jesus wants us to know and use our spiritual gifts. And uh, parents, you can use this lesson as written, adapting it for your needs. There's worship thoughts to bring into your, your home and use after you've done the lesson. And there's this really excellent spiritual gifts for kids inventory. Your children can take this spiritual gift inventory and then discover what their spiritual gifts are. Are any of you familiar with this? It was put out by NAB. And so with this tool, you, your kids can help discover what kinds of things they would be most interested in helping with according to their spiritual gifts. And then the last, the last one, is looking, it has uh, lesson 20, looks at, at helping the family setting and the children to find out um, who's their service projects, who could they be you know, going to, what is God calling them to do. And the first one is the people I would most, I would most like to help are. Who are you uh, drawn to? What are, the, what are the groups in there that you would find uh, touching your heart most? And then what are the issues that you feel strongly about? And of these, I think I could make a difference in. And so the family together can pick, can pick a project based on that. And this is a really wonderful resource for you to access in Don's material. Any questions on that? Yes. In Discipleship, www.indiscipleship. So now I want to talk about the camp meeting syndrome. We come to camp meeting and it's a mountaintop experience. We get inspired, we get enthused, we get motivated, we get insight, and we are feeling closer to God than we have in the rest of the year. We're praying more, we're learning more, we're connecting with other Christians in, in really meaningful ways, and camp meeting is just candy. It's candy for our spiritual souls. What happens next? We go back home. And what happens to all of that spiritual awakening that we had at camp meeting? We get busy. 
and it gets choked out and it withers away. And we come back to camp meeting next year like people who are addicted, and this is our, our hit, our fix, is camp meeting, and it's supposed to last us for the year. I want to talk to you about the importance of maintaining our, our relationship with God and what we've learned, the importance of coming to the cross of Christ every day and recognizing. Jesus said, remember me. Come to the cross and remember what Jesus has done for you. Then get into his word and let him speak to you. Get on your knees and talk to him. Open and surrender your life to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And use service as an antidote for your own selfishness. What we need to do when we come down off of the mountaintop to maintain what has gone on in camp meeting is intentionality, is choice. And so I'm going to give you a few minutes in quietude to look at what do you need to do? What is the Holy Spirit prompting you to do? Change will not happen without your intentionality. And so what is the Holy Spirit prompting you to change in your relationships to God, in your relationships to others, in your day-to-day doings? In order to maintain your camp meeting experience and go deeper in your relationship with God, I want you to think about this. I'm going to give you a few minutes to make a covenant with God and be so specific. You can't take on all of these at once. You know, which has hit you most powerfully as this is something in my life that is missing. I need to be practicing and putting this in place. Which are these disciplines? And think about your life, what can you do? Now we're looking at the who, what, when, where, why, how, but you're asking about yourself now. What is the Holy Spirit prompting you to do? Who is involved in that? What do you need to do? When do you need to do it? How will you do this? And I want you to make a plan so that the busyness of your life does not crowd out the prompting of the Holy Spirit when you go home. Be specific. Some of you need to write this down. I'm giving you a few minutes. I would like to give you some time to pray about this. Today I'm going to ask you to pray with another person. I want you to share with somebody else in this room what God is prompting you to do and pray for each other. I would like you to to make a question one of your most important questions you use in your life for other people. That question is, how can I pray for you? And uh, some people are not comfortable with prayer immediately then and there. And if they're not, pray for them in another setting. But today, if you want to choose to participate in this last part, I'm going to put up two last, let me do this, let's put up two last scriptures for you to look at. Um, How we can keep on keeping on and cut through the crush of busyness, I guarantee you, you're going to have more to do than you possibly can imagine you have to do when you get home on Monday and start back to work. You're going to have more distractions than you've had before because Satan does not want you to make a commitment to go deeper with God. And I'm going to be vulnerable, and I'm going to use you as my accountability partners today. And I I invite you to share your commitment with somebody who can ask you in a month or six months, what have you done with this? And this will be going to my accountability partner. I'll be texting her this today. And what I am prompted by the Holy Spirit to do in my life to go deeper is to sell my television. And I've been struggling a long time because that's the way I relax at night. I get home after a long day. I put in long days. And I get home and I, I relax in front of the TV. It doesn't matter what's on. I just am brain dead. And that's how I use it. And I think it's an excuse that I watch good stuff on it as well. And I do watch a lot of good stuff on the TV. And, but that's an excuse. And so I'm prompted by the Holy Spirit today to get rid of my TV. And my prayer is I need Jesus' strength to do that. I know I'm not strong enough. But I'm making a commitment today to follow through on the promptings of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I want to invite you to do that as well. What do you need to change about your life to go deeper with Jesus, to surrender yourself more to him? Is there another person you've not forgiven, you have mess, you know, messy stuff with? 
What, is there a mess you've made you need to clean up? You know, is there something you are doing in your life that is sin and is self-destructive for you and you need to stop it? What is your commitment today? What do you need to do or stop doing? Who do you need to clean up things with? Uh, is there a sin in your life? Be real with God today. And if you're comfortable sharing that with another person, I invite you right now uh, when you're done praying, we are done for this session, and you may go. If you want to stay longer, feel free to stay until the next group needs to get in here. And thank you for coming to my seminar, and I pray God's blessing on you. So if you're comfortable praying and asking for prayer, I want you to do that. And Darcy, you're mine. Will you come up front and pray for me? Can you? Okay. And God bless you.